Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. We are very blessed today to have a, um, a guest pastor um, who will be sharing the message, um, and uh, that's going to be Steve Eng, uh, and he is a covenant pastor as well, but he is also the advocacy director for the National Association of Evangelicals, and he's been in Anchorage giving some presentations, talking about biblical views of poverty and immigration, and we're very excited that he gets to share with us. Immediately after the service, um, there's going to be some more that he just can't fit into one service, like a little 10-minute more piece. If you'd like to know more, stick around, and, um, and he'll give a little bit more information. There's also a table in the back that he'll have, um, and that has some literature, and he'll be around to, to chat. I even think there's talks of going to New Sagaya and grabbing lunch if you just if you don't have a chance to get your questions answered, and we'd just like to talk to him a little bit more. So please welcome up Steve Bank. Hey, thanks. It's great to be with you this morning. Can you hear me okay? Okay, good, good. Yeah, my name is uh, Chris said Steve Eng, and uh, I have grown up in Minnesota. Uh, serve now, I'm covenant pastor, served both in the Pacific Northwest and in, uh, in Minnesota for a number of years, and have the honor of serving as advocacy director for the National Association of Evangelicals. So um, for those of you who don't know who uh, this organization is, we've been around since 1942, so we're 80 years old this year, and we're the uh, evangelicals who wanted to be rooted in the scriptures, committed to the gospel, but not, infer- not afraid to engage in the issues of the day. And so uh, we represent 40 different denominations, dozens of parachurch organizations, networks, ministries, schools, colleges, uh, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, all the campus ministries you can think of, crew navigators, university, all that are part of the NAE Salvation Army. Um, so we are the nation's largest and most diverse network of, of those evangelical organizations. What's cool is that, that we not only then resource pastors and Christian leaders and uh, provide a network for, the, for people to get to know each other who are leading those organizations, but also we have a seat at the table in Washington, D.C. on policy issues. So I have the privilege, really, of uh, representing the policy work that we do in in Washington, D.C., to pastors, to church leaders, to Christians around the country. And so that's what brought me to Alaska this week, where we had a few presentations, as Chris said. Well, growing up uh, as a kid in the suburbs of Minneapolis, uh, my favorite memories were weekends spent on the farm where my dad grew up. And pretty much everybody I knew, uh, we spent probably, we were one of these families who did Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evenings. Most times the church doors were open at my covenant church in, in suburban Minneapolis. We were there. And pretty much everybody that we knew were white and middle class and went to church. 
But early in my ministry, after I graduated from seminary, God sent me to this vast remote place uh, in northwest Washington state. I didn't realize that Alaska is even more remote, but I was in a little town called Clear Lake, Washington, in a historic logging community with a lot of struggling people. And if you've been around here for a while, some of you may remember Paul and Kathy Wilson. Paul was the field director here for the Alaska Covenant Churches at one point. And uh, for my first three years there, uh, I was co-pastoring with Paul and Kathy. And I was so sad to lose them to Alaska, but knew unmistakably that God had called them here. And I think really in that time, in those eight years that we spent in Clear Lake, that was an opportunity for me to really get to know people were genuinely poor in a way that I had maybe known in passing, but began to understand these people, their stories, uh, became friends, part of uh, my church family. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarities, I think, between Clear Lake and some more rural areas here in Alaska, but it was a very different place from the Minneapolis suburbs where I grew up. I met and married my wife, Judy, there, who was raised in Seattle, and after some years, our family moved to, uh, after we were in uh, Salem, Oregon for a little bit too, but we moved to western Minnesota, where we then served for 17 years. Well, after a few months at that church, she was in Alexandria, Minnesota, I realized that she didn't very far between, uh, beyond the people who were very well-groomed, uh, Scandinavian families in our covenant church, to find a lot of other people in that community who struggled with alcohol or drug abuse or poverty or just the challenges of life re-entering society after spending time in jail or in prison. Later on, God called us just down the highway to Wilmer, Minnesota, and unlike all white Alexandria, a third of Wilmer is actually made up of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers, both Hispanic and And people kind of wondered, why, why are you going to that community? Because, well, they have problems. And, uh, but it was amazing how God gave us a love for these new Americans as we began to understand more and more of their journey. Just as I'd learned to love these guys coming out of jail, in prison, or single moms, or people in recovery during our years in Alexandria. Well, currently we live in Rochester, Minnesota, which is home to the Mayo Clinic, and lots of high-tech folks, a lot of medical professionals. But we still have the privilege to connect with people in recovery, and ex-offenders, and struggling single parents, and immigrants who have relocated from all around the world. And it's so cool because we've seen many people come to faith in Christ during these years. And just hearing the stories and seeing the resilience of so many low-income or struggling people or immigrants who've settled in America from elsewhere, it's just given me more compassion and a deeper conviction that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save all people. Well, I suspect for you guys who are here today, here in Alaska, you understand some of what I'm talking about as our society keeps changing and we continue to face challenges. But I believe that covenant churches and covenant people at the very best do not run from the world's challenges because we believe John 14.35 when Jesus tells his followers, wake up and look around because the fields are already ripe for harvest. Because maybe where other people see problems, God's people see opportunities. 
opportunities to love and to serve and to see God do what only God can do. Well, as you well know, these past few years have brought a lot of bad news, in fact, almost every day. On top of a global pandemic, which has really changed the world and changed churches all across America, believers are also facing persecution in places like China or Southeast Asia or the Middle East and Africa. Nations are threatening nuclear conflict, and, and beginning about six months ago, people started fleeing Afghanistan, followed now by millions of people fleeing the Ukraine. Back just in January, a couple months ago, I had the privilege of visiting, visiting the southern U.S. border, where I learned that actually where in the past it's been often young single Mexican men who've tried to come or who have come into the country, that there are increasing numbers now of men and children, many of whom are fleeing violence and persecution, including many now who identify as evangelical Christians. And they're trying to seek asylum legally, actually, as they flee violence and political disruption and natural disasters in Central and South America and even in the Caribbean. And while I was down in Texas, it was heartening to see how so many Christians in El Paso and, and elsewhere along the border who are rising to these challenges. There's a network of Baptist churches in El Paso that have opened a migrant center there at a Baptist church where they work with U.S. Customs agents to feed and house and clothe up to 80 migrants at a time, while also providing worship services and Bible studies and discipleship opportunities. Perhaps you've heard of me in recent weeks how people have been driving hours across Poland to pick up Ukrainians in their cars to take them home. I visited Poland back in the late 1980s on a North Park uh, University choir tour, and I saw firsthand the Soviet-style apartment, these, these huge, really dismal sort of apartment projects with these tiny apartment flats, two- or three-room flats, that a lot of people still live in in Poland today. But with little room to spare, <laughs> these folks are opening their homes and their hearts to these refugees. Here in the U.S., our partner, World Relief, has been encouraged by so many uh, believers who are providing food and housing and practical assistance for Afghan families and others coming to, coming to the U.S. from around the world. And I've learned just this week that maybe as many as 100 from Afghanistan have come here to the Anchorage area. You know, the truth is that there have never been as many people fleeing violence and famine around the world since the end of World War II. And since the pandemic, the gap between the rich and poor has only been growing even here in the U.S. Now, living here in Alaska, you probably have a taste of the millions of kids and families throughout the country, really, who are living in deep poverty. And you probably know at some level that the poor are disproportionately represented by people of color, including Alaska Natives and other Native Americans. And you add to that now the skyrocketing cost of fuel and housing and utilities and transportation, and it's only making these struggles worse. But to be honest, when we start to talk about these issues, it's pretty easy for our defenses to go up. 
When people start talking about immigration, for instance, you have the build the wall folks on one hand who say they're sick and tired of illegals who are draining our social services and our school systems. They're displacing our American-born workers or they're raising crime rates. On the other hand, you have like the statue, I'll call them the Statue of Liberty people who focus on the brave immigrants who've come here to America to escape violence and find a better life for their children. And immigrants are, are scapegoated, they would say, with them legally while border agents rip mothers and fathers away from their terrified children or deport them back to places where they are bound to find certain death. Or, or if you talk about poverty, for instance, uh, some say that the poor just need to take more responsibility, while others say that there are problems that only the government can fix. And everybody thinks their perspective is right, don't they? But, but instead of trying to come together to fix these challenges, people tend to fight or just write off uh, the other people as far-left or far-right extremists. But what should our approach be as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Well, first of all, as Christians, we commit to read and to study the Bible for ourselves from beginning to end. From the start, in Genesis chapter 1, God is clear that he has created every person in his image with inherent dignity. And I love how God describes himself in Psalm 68, 5, when he says he is father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. In fact, when you read through the Hebrew scriptures, you, you find the word that God uses for the poor is this Hebrew word called abyon. And this word refers not only to those with little money, but also to anyone who's oppressed or abused or who lacks status in any way including strangers and foreigners in the land. And as God gave his people the law, he kept reminding the Israelites that they too were once oppressed and abused before he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. So God expected them to always remember how he had delivered them and to treat the orphan and the widow and the foreigner in the same way. Here's some examples. For example, God instructed his people to not cast judgment on those who are poor. Or secondly, to leave a remnant in their fields and harvest to feed the poor. Or thirdly, to provide for orphans and widows and migrants who had no land of their own. And then over time, many of the Hebrew prophets reminded God's people that many people are poor not because they are lazy, but that's sometimes because powerful people can prosper at the expense of those who are suffering. So God also commands his people to, and this is in Proverbs 31, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and to ensure justice for those who are crushed. Then you go to the New Testament and you discover, for instance, that Jesus himself was a refugee and was poor and a stranger. This past Christmas, we introduced our little granddaughter, Adeline, to our nativity set and began to tell her the story of Jesus. And in a language that only maybe a two-year-old can understand, we talked about how Jesus came to earth, and he came to earth as a stranger to save the world. 
Or maybe with older kids, we explain how Joseph and Mary and Jesus fled to Egypt as refugees as Herod tried to kill their son. Not unlike many who are fleeing our country today. And in Matthew 25, Jesus explains that he comes to us as a stranger who is hungry or naked or a prisoner that we must welcome. Then he says, and I know you know this verse, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In fact, you read the Bible carefully and you even find that Jesus at his ascension commanded his followers to go. We use that word go, but you could also think of it in terms of migrating around the world to make disciples of all nations. And later, when you study the early church, you find that they not only fearlessly proclaimed God's good news, but they also cared deeply for the widows and the slaves in their midst. I love this passage in Galatians chapter 2, how the, the Council of Apostles in Jerusalem welcomed Paul and Barnabas, and they affirmed Paul's preaching. You're doing a great job, Paul, they said. But they also reminded them, and do you remember what they said? He said to keep on helping the poor. And Paul said, what? He said, we're all over that. That's the very thing that we want to do. So we commit to keep reading and studying God's word, not just for warm devotional thoughts, but to shape our understanding of who God is and how he wants us to act in the world. Today, unfortunately, a lot of believers are allowing their opinions to be shaped more by the media or by politicians than by God's Word. Several years ago, World Relief commissioned Lifeway Resources to survey evangelical Christians on immigration issues. And they found, for instance, that 57% of evangelical Christians and 69% of white evangelicals said that the arrival of immigrants to their community presents a threat or a burden of some sort. And only 42% said that it presents an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. And that same study found that only 12% of evangelical Christians say that their views on the arrival of immigrants are primarily informed by the Bible. In fact, when you added and whenever you ask evangelicals what's the right answer, you hope that most of them will say the Bible, you know. But when you added the Bible, my local church pastor, other Christian leaders didn't come anywhere near to the influence that media has on evangelicals. And in a recent study on poverty, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that many American evangelicals feel that the primary cause of poverty is the sin of poor people themselves. In fact, they found that three times more white evangelicals than those with no religion say that poverty is caused by a lack of effort on the part of the poor. Now, sometimes a person's sin does contribute to poverty. And some people quote 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that's, that says that, well, people who don't work shouldn't eat. And so they say that poverty is a moral problem and people who are poor have probably made bad decisions and they're only looking for handouts. And I found that vulnerable people are often refreshingly candid about their own sin, maybe because they know firsthand what it's like to be abused or abandoned or they've dealt with corruption or persecution or crime. 
And while there are times that poor people make poor choices, when you say that you, when you and I say that the poor have somehow deserved their fate, well, we're categorizing whole groups of people really as outcasts. And when we do that, we not only give ourselves permission to ignore them, but we also tend to deny our own sin and the poor choices many of us tend to make. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 John 1.9, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. In fact, read through the Old and the New Testaments, and you find God's command again and again to love our neighbors with no excuses and no exceptions. And this is God's plan for Israel. The NAE had a webinar back several months ago uh, on poverty, and Adrienne Hinkle, she's a marvelous Pentecostal scholar from Oklahoma, and she reminded us, she said that as Israel loved their Lord and were generous with others, and how God blessed them because of that, the nations would take notice. The nations would wonder, and they would ask about Israel's compassion and generosity. And Israel would use this opportunity to invite others to know their God and to serve him. Well, God's plan for us remains the same today, that we love God with all of our hearts and we love our neighbors as ourselves, even us. Now, while many would rather avoid or seeing or hearing those people, the scriptures are clear that the God of Israel continues to see and hear them. In that same webinar, Dr. Hinkle went on to say, Time and time again, God disrupts the status quo, and he challenges the social constraints of identity. He chooses the younger brother, the lesser tribe, the woman, and the foreigner to rise above their social status as representatives of God himself through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You know, in my short time this past year as advocacy director with the NAE, I have loved meeting believers all across the country who, who take evangelism and personal morality and discipleship seriously. But many of these same people that I'm meeting also pray with and serve the poor and vulnerable in Jesus' name. And they don't even shy away from tackling social and economic and political forces that keep individuals and families and whole groups trapped in uncertainty or cycles of poverty. Well, as we wrap up with this portion of the service this morning, I just want to encourage you to continue serving hurting people in your community and to do that face-to-face. -face. It's so important. But let me also challenge you and explain why advocating for vulnerable people in the public square might also be fitting for a follower of Jesus. There's this NAE guidebook, and I have copies of it back at the, um, at the resource table. It's called For the Health of the Nation, an Evangelical Call to Civic Responsibility. It's kind of a mouthful, uh, but it came out maybe 15 years ago. It's been updated, but it's sort of our guidebook on, as an organization, but also as Christians, how we are to engage in the public square on like eight different issues here. 
And in this book, it reminds us that in Genesis chapter 1, that God created our first parents in his image and gave them dominion over the earth. And maybe exercising dominion begins at home or it begins at church. But we also exercise dominion and represent God well in the public square, in our schools, in businesses, in civic groups, and even in government. We advocate for the poor and vulnerable because Paul declares in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is Lord over all. As the theologian Abraham Kuyper once explained, he said, Not a square inch of, in all of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare, Mine. So with Jesus, we announce to the world that God is coming to establish his kingdom and it's a kingdom marked by justice and peace and forgiveness and restoration and healing for all. We raise our voices because the Christian faith is not only deeply personal, but it is also prophetic. Even when things seem to be falling apart, we speak his word in our world, we redeem what's broken, and we partner with God to bring renewal and reconciliation to all people. And as we engage in society, and sometimes even in politics, we can bring a unique vision to our nation because we are convinced that people can change and that communities can be transformed. Finally, we engage in the world because we have the gift of the Spirit who compels us to share Christ's love and his justice with others. It was back in 2015, and I was driving down U.S. Highway 71. It was my first day of work. My family hadn't quite moved down to Wilmer yet, and I was traveling down Highway 71 um, an hour south. And as I'm in the car on that highway, all of a sudden, God flooded me with a love for Somali people. But you know what? I hadn't even met a Somali yet. But that love from God began to open doors over a period of several years where I was able to share God's love and people in our church war and built bridges and saw God work in some amazing ways, both with Somalis and also with Hispanic immigrants in our community, which then carried over to my time in Rochester in the work I'm doing today. You see, as God pours his love through our hearts, Christ compels us to share his love and pursue his justice for those who are vulnerable. And just as God commanded Israel, we bless others as we have been blessed by God. And as we do this, it speaks loudly about God to a doubting and a skeptical world. What we're going to do in just a few minutes is close the service, and uh, then I just have some specific things. If you want to just jump to the last slide, if you're not able to stay for um, a few minutes later, we have some cards back at the back. Let me give you a, show you what look, they look like. Um, they're blue. It says raise your voice on them, and there's a QR code, and there's also a URL at the bottom, and so there's probably at any given time, we have eight campaigns going on, 
And uh, with the software we have, we keep up to date on what's happening. In Washington, we're always arranging for meetings with your elected officials, but also there's letters that are already pre-written on these issues, and you can simply put in your name and email address and click send, and a letter will go to your senators, for instance. Um, and, uh, but also, you can edit those letters and say whatever you want to say, you know, but if you need some sort of help or coaching, we have some sample letters that you can send. So we encourage you to take this. There's also lots of great resources. You can go into the search box and type Sanctity of Life or Religious Freedom or Immigration or Poverty, and you can find articles and uh, webinars and podcasts and lots of great resources to help you and to help you help others as well. So I'll go into some details uh, when we circle back. I know there's also a reception, but if people want to stay for another 10 minutes or so after the service, I can go into some more details on some of the policy things we're working on. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the kindness of people here at First Covenant, uh, for the partnership that we've had in the gospel for years. Lord, I know that this church has been ascending church and a place where people have come and then gone out um, to bless people out in villages uh, through KIC Radio, through Alaska Christian College, through just some amazing ministries that have been part of this church for many, many years. And Lord, as this church is engaged also in ministries with people here in this community, Lord, I pray blessing upon them and may the light and love of Jesus shine through brighter than ever through these dear folks and friends and brothers and sisters here at First Covenant. And Lord, just help guide us to do how your spirit, uh, as your spirit leads us to do, Lord, to support and to speak on behalf of those who sometimes find it hard to have a voice themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.